Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about getting feedback on your game from a publisher. We're talking about what to do when a publisher says no to your game. When, when you offer up your, your baby, you take your little prize possession there and you say, hey guys, do you think you want to print this? And they say, no, well now we're good. And how to deal with that? We, we're going to talk to Dan Peterson, the lead game developer and product acquisition guy over at Mayday Games. He's the first line of defense. He's the gatekeeper for Mayday Games. If you want a, a game to get published by them, he's the first guy you got to talk to. And so Dan is an expert on this and I'm really excited to have you on the show, Dan. Really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, just kind of give us uh, some of your background. Like, who are you? Give me the two-minute bio, how you got into games, how you became the lead guy over there at Mayday as far as game developing and, and acquisitions. Uh, just let people know why your opinion matters and why they should listen to you. Okay. Um, well, first I started out as uh, as many in this industry as a volunteer. I knew uh, Seth and Ryan at Mayday Games. And uh, Ryan actually used to come over several days a week during his lunch break he was a civil engineer at the time and we would play games in the afternoon and then all of a sudden he got made the president of mayday games and no more ryan he was too busy doing things during his lunch break so i kind of missed those gamings and that gaming opportunity and so i said well why don't you just bring some of these prototypes over if that's what you're doing with your time so we started looking through uh, some of the prototypes they had and, and just giving opinions and then later, it slowly evolved into uh, where they made me part of the development team. I still was an employee at the time. Uh, then later, I got involved with uh, the warehouse, uh, some inventory management, and took over several other things. And about three and a half years ago, no, two and a half years ago, they made me a full-time employee. And uh, so since then, I've been wearing many hats because it's a small company. But the, the fun part of the job is game development and also looking for new games to publish. So uh, oftentimes I'll be at the conventions at this speed dating and meeting with the designers at the MPUB events. Excellent. And so let, let's kind of talk about your two different roles. What all do you do as far as development? Now, we, we had an episode um, early on with the show, and we talked to a game developer, and he kind of talked us through his role and what he does. But tell me what you do over at Mayday as far as developing games that come in. You know, this is probably a subject for another show, uh, but but I often wonder what exactly do people mean when they say development, and, right. and I think a term in the industry. So what I do as a game developer is that I double check the work and make sure that it's ready for the marketplace. So think of me in a sense as maybe a producer mm -hmm. or maybe a coach. So there's a few things that uh, that I have to do to be a good developer. One, I have to make the assumption that I do not know everything and that as clever and as hard as I try, I'm still stuck in my own perspective. That's just the way I am. I mean, there are things in life, Gabe, that you know and you understand that I can't even begin to comprehend because you're simply a different person. You've had different experiences. Right. So, I'm as a game developer, that really helps to know that, hey, I need to look at the designers as a wealth of information. And so there's times I'm looking at a design and I think I might want to change something. But after I ask the designer and see their perspective, I realize that that's a really good decision and it needs to stay in the game. So I just kind of go through everything and make sure that it's running smoothly. It's operating. Most of the time, uh, 
the designers, well, I wouldn't say most of the time, but many of the designers I find aren't uh, mathematically minded. So their numbers are a little bit off or they're not balanced. And so that kind of goes into a big spreadsheet, trying to find uh, number patterns, make sure that everything matches, balances out. And that really shakes out a lot of problems after you balance a game. Then the next thing is is trying to eliminate any rules, make it consistent. Uh, an example with a, with a game of that was Garbage Day. Originally, he had you know he has those make mischief cards, and the only thing I had to do is make sure that you played it into another player's room and how it triggered. That was it. So I just eliminated exceptions to make sure that they all operated the same. And then another part of development is the graphic design, the interface between the players in the game. Because players are thinking something, they're looking at the cards or the components, and they have something specific in mind, the strategy. And that information needs to be in an easily ready, you know, able to digest spot on the card. You don't want players looking at the card trying to figure out, what am I doing? Where do I find that information? You want them to have that information right in front of them, and they're just playing the game and not fighting the components of the game. So sometimes I do have to make some rule changes, but most of the time it's just uh, smoothing out the graphic design, making sure it's balanced, and uh, going from there. Another thing is is that you know I have to step out of my own perspective in the sense that if I was a music producer, I don't want to bring in a band into the studio and make them sound like Metallica because I like Metallica. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it, absolutely. It, Britney Spears, I can't make her sound like Metallica. Hmm. I you know I have to embrace the core of the game and really keep with that and not just redo it because that's what I like to do. And I think that that a lot of people see that with feedback. That if someone likes a Euro game, they're always trying to push every game that they look at to be a Euro game and not just what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about kind of your, your other hat with the product acquisition. How does the development kind of bleed into that? Like, do you have games that come on your desk and you go, man, I really want to be a part of this. I want to develop this thing. Is that kind of play a role in the product acquisition of things? Uh, it definitely plays a role in the product acquisition. Yeah. Uh, when I first uh, I was unrealistic of my time and uh, in my ability. And so there were times where I thought, oh, I can make this game great, but it would require a major overhaul. So now when I'm looking at games, I'm looking to see how far along is it, how much development is it going to take on my side to finish this game. And so in the past, I have taken on some very big, uh, very big projects. And um, yeah, there's definitely things that I'm more interested in and working than others on the, on the acquisition or, on the development side of it. But, uh, yeah, I definitely get excited about a lot of the projects. Uh, a lot of times I'll see games that they've got some really neat ideas, but the rest of it is pretty clunky. Hmm. And I sometimes I'll tell designers, it's like, I, I'm really curious to see where this game goes. You know, kind of keep me in the loop. Let, you know, just drop me an email of, uh, of, of let me know how this goes, because I'm curious to see what you're going to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of what you're talking about right now, something I've brought up on other episodes is if you're going to go to a publisher and try to get it published, be as close to done with it as you can. Play test as much as you can. Do as many uh, blind play tests. Do, do as many things as you possibly can to make sure it is as close to finished as possible. That way the publisher doesn't have to develop it maybe as much. That way they'll, they'll see it as, you know, oh, we have time for this because it's only going to take this much as opposed to some giant project they're wanting, they're wanting to take on. You feel good about that? Absolutely correct. There's, uh, yeah, we see a lot of neat ideas that we don't have the time to develop. And so either either the publisher or, excuse me, either the designer is going to finish developing it or another publisher is going to pick it up. And I've often wondered, 
you know, are all of us publishers kind of looking at all these projects and when one gets close enough, is it going to be the first one that grabs that project? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I've wondered if that's what's going on. Yeah. Now, how many games do you think you evaluate on a yearly basis? Like how many games come across your desk? Probably three to four a week on average. Okay. So that's 150 to 200 on a, on a yearly basis. Is that about right? Yeah, definitely. And last year, I I played over two hundred unpublished games. Wow! And so, how many of those does Mayday actually pick up? Out of that one hundred and fifty to two hundred, how many do y'all publish? Very few. Hmm. We might sign four or five games a year. Now, there's something to consider here. Um, these are original games because we do pick up licenses from other countries where we have the English right to publish the game. So, so you're looking at original games. We probably put out four or five, you know, three to five a year. Right. And so let's kind of get into the why of that. Why Why do you say no to so many? Because I'm sure, you know, it's not 146 of those games that are garbage. I'm sure there's a lot of those games in there that are pretty good or good enough to publish for sure. You just can't for whatever reason. So what are some of those reasons that you tell people no, uh, you're not going to print their game? Oh, that is correct. It's, um, well, several different reasons. Uh, one, it, it just doesn't fit in our wheelhouse. And so we do light family-friendly games. We really like dexterity games. And so as designers, you need to research the company that you're submitting your game to. No matter how good it is, we're not going to be doing a heavy Euro. It's just not something that we're doing. We're not going to be doing a heavy war game. We're definitely more on the light side of things. Now, keep that in mind, though. We're always kind of pushing that envelope, and we're pushing our boundary, but they're small steps. You know, it, someday we might be publishing more of those games, but again, it's got to be that natural slow progression from where we're at now to where we're headed. And it's interesting because design or publishers know what each other's games are. There's times where I'm at a convention and, and another publisher has come up to me and said, "Hey, did you see your game in the speed dating?" They, they know who <laughs> whose games are what. Yeah, absolutely. So, what are some of the other reasons you might say no? Just be, you know, if a game is too clunky or just not refined enough, or, or what are some other reasons? Oh, when I first started. Uh, this was kind of interesting. It was, there was just broken games. I mean, there was just one bad game after another. And um, as we started putting out better games, we started getting better submissions. And a big turn point for us was when we put out Viceroy. When Viceroy came out, we started getting a lot better submissions. You know, if a game's not working, it's clearly broken. We don't put it out. And it's hard, too, because, you know, the industry continuously demands more. There's good games that are ready to be published that have turned into mediocrity hmm. because of the the number of good games coming out of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we live in a time right now where good is not really good enough, if we're being honest, as far as a game having a, a having staying power and being around for a long time. Yeah, you are absolutely correct. It, it's you know because the majority of games are one print run and done. Yeah, that's it. And uh, you're you're absolutely correct. It, it's uh. You know, you can take game design, you can make a fun game, you can make it interesting, but at some point you realize that we've already explored this idea. This isn't something unusual or interesting anymore. It, it's already out there, and so we need something more. Yeah, and that's another good thing, I think, for people to hear. You know, you might have a really good game, but if there's 10 other games just like it, then a publisher's not going to print it because, you know, the market market share has already been kind of taken up. If you're going to create the next dungeon crawl, well, I mean, there's so many different dungeon crawls. It better be very, very different or unique or interesting uh, for a publisher yeah. to even to, to think about it. You know what kind of games I get constantly? I get I get adventure games. I get Talisman nonstop. Oh, really? And problem, I can't compete with Talisman. <laughs> right. 
it's already out there. It's already established. And who wants the same game of roll, move, land on a space, and draw a card? We've, we've already explored that idea. We, we've got to get something more. I get tons of trick-taking games. But, you, you know, the most innovative thing that's been done in trick-taking game is diamonds. Mm-hmm. Because it's interesting. You're playing a trick-taking game, but you're not thinking about taking tricks. You're thinking about getting diamonds behind into your vault. So it's very clever that they've mixed that up a little bit. And I, I see war a lot. You know, compare two cards, highest win, whatever's on the table. There's so many games that I see over and over and over. And again, these games aren't broken. It's just that we've seen it. We've done it. We, we've already explored those ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's, let's talk about that word broken, though. How do you define broken? So when a game hits your desk and you play it and you go, oh, man, this is okay. It's got a good idea, but it's broken. What does that mean? It means it's not functional. It's not... Um, Clicking, it's not working, means that they definitely need to learn some more game design to to make that happen. Gotcha. So really, it's just a, they need to take more time and polish it and and maybe smooth some some edges around because uh, it literally just does not work. It, yeah, exactly. It gotcha. literally doesn't work. Um, you know, I've seen one game where well, it's it's hard too because I saw one, one game where uh, I mean, how's this for a pitch? I mean, it, it's a dice rolling game where you're building these franchises. Right there, I'm sold. I want it. It's going to be light. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. But the problem is, is that the cards have dice pips on them. You roll the dice. You have maybe four or five dice, and you uh, just match it up and take it. So, so I don't have any choices. And the only problem, and my probability is all the same. It's one in six. Yeah. There, there wasn't no greater than, less than. There wasn't any combos. There, there wasn't any luck mitigation. There was nothing there. Yeah. And and so that's broken. Uh, there's another game where I saw where, you know, the probability of things coming out of the bag was such that you could just forfeit your first two turns, break the probability of the bag, and then reap the benefits later. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I saw that you're amassing an army and you're doing hit points to take uh, pieces off of the monsters. And so you'd have five points on one and, and five points on the other, but you'd roll different dice and then either high or three, four, five, six would get you a victory point or not. But they weren't consistent. The numbers weren't consistent in the sense that doing five damage on this monster versus another monster, my probability of actually getting a victory point was not the same. And so you you, you see little things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing you're talking about is people have to be very conscious that they're making a game and not just an activity. You know, if, if you're yeah. doing something, there's nothing to change it. You're just rolling a die and, and oh, this is what this is the one choice that you have. Well, it might be just an activity and maybe not very fun for people to play. Definitely not. Uh, Bunko is, is <laughs> sums that up. But that's why Bunko sells. People want to get together and chit-chat and in the meantime roll dice and try to get whatever their numbers are for Bunko. Right. But there's probably not a lot of room for Bunko 2.0 with, you know, with a different theme. That, that, like, there's that one game, and I don't know how many games of that type can exist in the market and actually be successful. Well, that does bring up another point, and I have wondered about this. Is it like the movie industry that you're going to connect with the idea of your generation? So, for example, how many times, how many movies have we seen where you have a civilized man that's alone that gets adopted by a primitive culture, and he learns their greatness and their nobility and tries to save the culture from his peers? Uh, for me, it was it was Dances with Wolves. Uh, yes, I'm that old. You, what my Avatar. Uh, yeah. 
Samurai. I, there, there's several movie ideas. Is that happening in the board game industry at this point that we're just retreading the same ideas, hoping that a new generation will capture that idea because they didn't see the other one? You know, that's a good, that's a good point. And I, I don't know. I don't have near enough knowledge of, of the games. That'd be a, like a Tom Vassell question or somebody who's played thousands of games over the years and who could maybe uh, offer some ideas on the trends that, that they've seen. Uh, that, that's a really uh, decent idea. We could probably explore that on a whole different episode, honestly. But, but, but at the same time, the clever thing about gaming or, or board games versus video games is, is that there is, there, there's an evolution in board games. Because in video games, you're kind of stuck. There's only about five games and there's really not much mixing of those ideas or the mechanics. And it's just kind of the same game over and over and over. But what video games do, they do very well, which is brings in the multimedia, the sound, the video. Uh, they reward you with a burst, a nice sound. You, you unlocked an achievement. That's something that you can't do in a board game. Yeah, I agree. The immersion that a video game can just put a player right into, and it's all the way from... Oh. From the rules, I mean, you think about a board game, you spend the first 20 minutes just trying to figure out the rules and how to play. A video game, you pick it up, and it teaches you as you go with the little tutorial at the beginning, but you're actually playing the game as you learn it. I mean, just the immersion is so much different. Without a doubt. Is that the future for the board game industry? Will people develop or design and develop games where they can learn as they play? And I think that we'll see more of that as time goes by. Yeah, absolutely. Well, getting back into why you might say no, uh, any any other reasons you might say no like have you had uh, the the scenario where a game was just so good and you just really loved it you wanted to print it but there was just no room on the list so to speak you already had too many games in the queue or something like that and you just had to pass on it oh uh, well if the game's that good we'll take it but we do that does help sway the, the opinion right now we're probably about two year backlogged on games and so i'm going to be going to unpub next uh yeah, next month, about a month from now. And a game at this point really has to knock my socks off there or we're not going to pick it up. Yeah, absolutely. And and overall in the industry, is that kind of the same and, and with all the publishers as far as ones you know? It is. I've heard several designers and publishers say that I'm two years out or it's going to take a while before this game gets done. Yeah, I think that's one thing game designers, especially younger or newer ones, don't understand is that the, the process takes a long, long time. Like you're saying, two years. Two years is a long time. And we live in an age where I could write a book today and it could be on Amazon on Kindle tomorrow. You know, like it, it could be that fast. But in game designing, it's a totally different scenario. Totally different. Um, yes, the, the artists take a long time. You're, you could easily look at three to six months for the artist to be finished. And then after that, you've got to get the graphic design and everything together. If you run a Kickstarter campaign, that's another month. Uh, you've looking at a month or two for production. You're looking at another two months for shipping. Yeah, there's a lot of work and a lot of, of waiting time to get a board game from start to finish. Absolutely. And so that could be another reason why a company says no. It's just they don't have the time to devote to, like you're saying, like a Kickstarter or like all these different things. You have so many things going on that take so much time that you might just not have the time to print a game. You got it, definitely. And, uh, you know, a lot of times it's oversaturation. Uh, there's a new designer. His name's Adam Weiss out of Canada, really talented. He has a really unique way of seeing uh, games, and, and we signed his first two games. And since then, he's signed either three or four more with several different companies. But he sold me a game called Head of Mousehold, and it's a... Kind of a press your luck game where you're trying to get your mice and you're running through and you don't want to get hit by the mouse trap, so you want the other guys to get hit. 
clever, fun, second guessing. But we already have Git, Bit, and Dungeon Busters in our portfolios, and so at that point, are we kind of cannibalizing our own our right. own market? Right. Are you competing with yourself at that point? Exactly. And Git Bit is is just such a wonderful game that it, it just keeps selling. It, it, it just it's it's just great because you know you're trying to swim faster than than your friends and then the shark eats them and the idea of just grabbing that plastic figure and ripping the arm right off people really that that's a neat part of that game right and i think what you're saying also speaks to another reason a publisher might say no because i mean you want to approach a publisher that prints similar games to what you've created like i wouldn't go to mayday with a big heavy euro game because that's just a waste of everybody's time because you guys do family style games but if my game is too similar to something you've already printed then there's probably not a very good chance you're going to want to print that one too. Yeah, yeah, you've got it. So another question. So when when a, uh, a designer sends you a game, you review it, you evaluate it, maybe you, maybe you play it, read through the rules, whatever your process is. And I'll ask, actually, I want to talk about your process in a minute. But whenever you go through that process, do you, how do you break the news to a designer, hey, we're not going to print your game? How, what does that process look like? Well, if it's uh, – it, it depends because uh, you're, you're looking at two different uh, – settings if it's a blind email i just simply tell them no we're, we're not going to publish the game if you're speaking to them face to face at a convention you uh you speak more you give a little bit more feedback if you have time uh so which one do you want to cover first the blind submissions or the the convention let's do the uh, blind submissions first okay blind submissions well yeah when i first got in the industry i would give a lot of feedback and um it led to some undesirable outcomes. Yeah. Uh, many times I would have them come back and, and they, they felt like they had to justify their game or defend their game. They, you know, they were telling me that, no, it's wrong. You don't see it that way. It's this, this, this. And, you know, I understand it's their baby and things like that. But after a while, you just realize you don't have time for that. If it's a blind submission, it's either going to be, I want more information or no, we're not going to publish this. Gotcha. So you don't even you don't even give like any kind of reason at all. It's just kind of hey, this that's not the direction we're going in. Just kind of a general email. No, it's it's really blunt. Uh, we I appreciate. Thank you for your submission. We are not going to publish this game, and that's it. I mean, it's it's just no, we're not going to publish it. Yeah, and I understand that. You know, in and even in literary and a lot of other mediums right now, it's the same thing because uh, publishers or agents they're inundated with so many opportunities. And so it would take up so much time for you to sit down and write a long, drawn-out email about, hey, this mechanism didn't quite work right, this needs polishing, this over here needs to be cut and changing the rules. Like, it takes a lot of time for you to do something like that. And often, it's not even received uh, favorably. A lot of times, people get mad, they get upset, they get offended, and then they let you know about it, and that just, you know, that's just no good for anybody. That's absolutely correct. Uh, well, that game that I mentioned about, you know, the dice rolling and building the franchise, they you know, I told him no, and I gave him feedback, and I even knew better. You know, it's like ah, I shouldn't, but you know, I want this game, but the way they're presenting it just isn't there. I mean, they sold me on the concept, but but the gameplay didn't deliver. So I said, you know, please look at look at uh, probability. Uh, you know, I even sent him a link to a website uh, to 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 discuss it. I even uh, sent him some information, or I also included information about well, what about. Uh, mitigation you know luck mitigation so the players can get some choices so later they submitted the same game unchanged to the ion award which is an unpublished it's a it's a unpublished board game award every year at salt mm -hmm. so uh, signers if you guys uh, haven't heard of it look it up 
it's an opportunity to get your game in front of several publishers. And so they submitted to that unchanged, and then they ran a kick. And then after it didn't get to the four finalists, they ran a Kickstarter of the game unchanged. Wow. So, you know, the advice that even when it was offered, it just didn't matter. Yeah. And and so I, I don't have the time. I don't have the time for the argument. I. I was submitted a game where you just play cards and move points around. You know, you got positive and negative points. You're trying to acquire the positive and slough the negative off onto the other player. And we've already explored that idea. We've explored that idea to death. And he was really upset. Well, me and my friends have it. We've, we've had fun with this game. Isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that why you publish games? I mean, he was upset that I passed on his game, but a lot of times what they don't realize is that I've already got maybe five games under contract and I'm looking at these other games and unfortunately you're competing with what is in my perspective but uh yeah it it makes it very difficult you know because they're competing with the games I have under contract and the other games that I'm considering and that makes it very difficult because you know there's times where we're looking at a game and we're seriously considering it and then we see something else and it killed off one of the submissions Okay, so it is possible then for a game to come in and, and for you to go, okay, we like this one better than better than yes. the other one, and to push that one off off the table, so to speak. Yes, that definitely happens quite a bit. Gotcha. You know, one thing I'm really hearing from you, though, is, gosh, people just need to be more open to the feedback, more open to criticism. It's unfortunate we live kind of in a day and time where no one's really allowed to just be blunt and just kind of say, hey, this isn't very good, here's why, and it not be personal, for it just to be just – this is what it is. Uh, I think I've told this story on the show before, but you know, one of the biggest blessings of my life, I had a professor in college. I, I majored in creative writing, in English creative writing, and I had a professor who would just literally rip up stories that I wrote and say, "This is garbage. Do something else." And like in front of the class, you know, and like it's kind of it would be embarrassing, you know, to people. Uh, maybe nowadays you run home and tell mommy, and, and they you know, sue the school or something. But at the time it was the best thing that could have happened because those stories were garbage. I did need to improve. I did need to get better. And so I, I just, I wish people would understand that's what feedback is about. It's not about getting your feelings heard. It's not about Dan who's got some vendetta against your game and he just wants to hurt your feelings. You just, you honestly want your job to be easier and the, yeah. <laughs> to, to uh, have games that come in that are already polished and developed and, and ready to go because that makes everything better, makes the whole industry better. Uh, but if you get your feelings hurt because somebody called your baby ugly, you're not helping anybody. Uh, agree. And yeah, you've got to get your ego out of it. It's uh, you've just got to kind of disconnect. I, I understand. I understand how you're connected to it. But that brings up the other side of what about when I'm looking at a game at at a convention yep. and I have time to give feedback. And so. Sometimes, um, sometimes I don't see anything in the game and, you know, we're playing a little bit. And after I think I've seen it all and I'm bored to tears, I I asked the designer point break, is there anything I haven't seen yet? Because there's no way I can finish this game. And usually they say no. And then it's interesting because designers know what's good about their games, but maybe they don't know how to ask the questions to themselves to really focus on that missing piece. So at that point, I ask them, well, first I tell them, I says, I didn't see anything interesting. I am bored. I, I'm not engaged at all. I, I, I don't see anything that's grabbing my attention. So you tell me, this is your game. Where's the magic? What am I missing? And interestingly enough, they know. They know where the magic is. Right. And so after I listened to them, I said, you know, that was the best part of the game. I agree. But why am I doing this, 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 and that? 
Because if that's the best part of the game, then focus on that and get rid of everything else. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think it's Gil Hova, another designer, who, who says, find the fun. Find the fun and then make that the main thing that you're doing. So if you get all these actions that are just kind of uh, – just not not enjoyable or they're just redundant or you know whatever get them out get them out of the game and focus on that fun part i completely agree and you know a lot of times i'll see parts of a game that i do like and i'll tell them it's like this is the gold you know the rest of this is is not you know this is the idea you really need to develop and and, uh you know even discuss some ideas well what about this have you tried that uh and hopefully inspire them that that's where part of the developing is a coach where you can hopefully get more out of the designers than what you're seeing. Gotcha. Well, we've talked about how maybe not to respond to feedback. What would you say is the best way to respond to feedback? You know, whether it's an email form or that just standing there talking face to face, how should a person receive that feedback? There's something you need to know about feedback. Uh, First off that 90% of the time, if someone gives you feedback, they're correct. But 90% 90% of the time, the suggestions that they gave you to fix the problem, they're incorrect. Hmm. So that's something to keep in mind. An example, I was working on a game where uh, I created sets so that you can create, uh, in the end, you can create sets and get a scoring bonus, and it mixed it up a little bit. And one of the feedback I got from one of the playtesters is, oh, you have too many sets. But I had one set more than the number of players to avoid ties and things like that. So my first instinct was like, no, we have to have one more set because to break up the ties what he was really saying was you have too many cards Hmm. and so after i realized that because again i thought well why did he even give me that feedback and as i analyzed it further i realized well he's saying i have too many cards so i reduced the card count and kept all the sets and it worked much better because of it gotcha so so take everything with a grain of salt but if somebody brings up a problem they're probably yeah. not the only one who's going to experience that issue. Yep, you got it. You know, and I was talking to J.R. Honeycutt, saying one of our one of the first episodes. He talked about how no matter how many playtests you do, when you release a game that first day, it's probably going to get played more than it ever was in playtesting. So if you know if one little issue comes up in playtesting from one person, well, that's going to get exponentially uh, grown when the game actually releases, and you have hopefully hundreds and thousands of people. Uh, play in the game, you know, all of a sudden one turns into 500 when the game scales. It's so true. It's You have no idea how people are going to uh, look at the game in the wilds. And, and you do you try to get it in front of as many playtesters as possible, observe how people are playing your game, try to understand and learn from others. I, I have seen a lot of designers, it, because they're good and they're smart, that, you know, they think that their way is always the best. And you know, the, the success to, to everything is, is just step back a little bit, learn from those around you. Constantly try to see what other people around you are seeing. That, that's the best advice I could give anybody. Absolutely. So what are, what are maybe some of the consequences of somebody receiving feedback really poorly? You know, they, they shoot back with a bunch of stuff that's just, just you know, just, they doesn't need to be said. Uh, they try to defend, defend, defend. They won't, don't want to listen, all that. Are there any consequences of that as far as, you know, like if they submitted you another game, would you go, yeah, I remember the last time we traveled down this road? Or, or do, you know, do you guys in publishing talk to each other about certain games that you saw and, and all that? You know, what are some of the consequences of, of a bad reaction? First off, yes, publishers do talk with each other. It's quite interesting because as, as you're evaluating games, you often wonder, 
am I doing this right? <laughs> am, I, am, am I missing something that others are seeing? So quite often after a speed dating, the other publishers will talk and say, hey, what did you think of that game? And many times what they tell me is exactly what I was thinking about the game. So, so it's quite interesting to see that we all see the same problems, the same potentials, but not, but it's just not quite there yet. And so publishers talk. And another thing too, is that when we work on a project, we're going to be working with the designer. Well, I hope, but depending on the designer's personality depends on how involved they're going to be into the project. Because if they're going to cause problems and disagree, now keep this in mind, regardless of who's right or wrong, we have conflict, which means conflict resolution, and that takes even more time to get the game done. Right. And so a lot of times, you know, their personality has a lot of impact on the project if they're going to be involved in the final say or some of the decisions. Yeah, so is that how, how has that played a role in you signing a game? You know, if you have a conversation with a person and you can sense that there's going to be conflict, that they're not really going to they're not coachable, they're not going to listen. How does that affect you as far as wanting to to sign their game? Got to be an amazing game. There there have times there have been times where games have been rejected because of the personality of the designer. Right. And that's something I really hope people understand. How you present yourself is so pivotal, especially in the we're going to talk about this in a second, in these speed dating opportunities where you're talking to so many publishers, you're presenting yourself, put your best foot forward, dress nice, smell good, you know, practice what you're going to say, be ready and prepared as possible because they're evaluating you just as much as they're evaluating the game. Without a doubt. Oh, come on. Who's the developer at DMG? Not Andy Van Zandt, but the other guy. He did Eminent Domain. Oh, Seth Jaffe. Seth Jaffe, yeah. Uh, Seth Jaffe gave me some great advice early on. He said, when I'm talking to a designer, he goes, I make a suggestion of changing some really basic idea in the game or, or a heart of the game, just some ridiculous thing to see how they're going to react. Yeah, that's good. That, that means designers to get a feel for them. Yeah, absolutely. And you can tell so much by their reaction in that moment. You can learn so much about a person. Without a doubt. There, there's definitely some good questions that I like to ask people, uh, ask designers about their games. It might be, where did you get the idea from the game? You know, I want to kind of hear a story about that. Uh, tell me about some previous iterations. And what they tell me, I really get a good feel of how well do you know your game. And, and that got into this into uh, consideration for the game. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about speed dating. You mentioned that a couple of times. Kind of Talk about what speed dating is, just in case people maybe hadn't heard of it, uh, and talk about what that scenario looks like, and just kind of give a rundown uh, of that opportunity. All right, uh, speed dating, it's at several conventions. Uh, designers, you can sign up. You get about a five-minute pitch to publishers, and the publishers kind of revolve around the room. And so we're going to hear, wow, about 20 pitches in about two hours or so. It's it's pretty intense. It's uh, it's odd because uh, sometimes that five minutes is too long and sometimes that five minutes is too short. It's it's quite interesting. But uh, the designers are so nervous. And, uh, you know, in our mind, we're thinking lots of things. We're thinking, how much is this game going to cost? Just the price of a game scares us away from it. Uh, we, we think, is this going to work in my public, in, in our product line? You're comparing it to the other games you already have under contract. But it's a really good experience in games. We have signed games that we've looked at and found at Speed Dating. It's definitely something to, to go to and attend and participate in. Yeah, like what, what kind of advice would you give somebody in, in that situation as far as how to present the game, what to focus on? In, I mean, you only got five minutes. And yeah. so if you've got a deep, heavy game, 
you really better consolidate what you're going to talk about into the best parts of that game. So what would, would be your advice? Uh, the best thing to talk about is the uniqueness. I mean, give us an idea of the mechanic of the game and the theme, but talk about the uniqueness. Why is your game, why is this worker placement game better than any other one on the market? Why would I want to publish this game? And so a lot of times, if you could think of what the designer's thinking or, or the publisher and give them the information that they're looking for, that really goes a long way. No, it's another great point, because do do the designers know which publishers are going to be in the speed dating before it happens? I don't know if they publish those or not. And oftentimes, some of the publishers don't quite attend because after two, three days of a con, you don't make speed dating all the time. It, it <laughs> happens. Right, I understand that for sure. But if you know if you're a designer and you're going to do a speed dating and you do and you do know which publishers are going to be there, there's a lot of value in researching those publishers, figuring out what they like as far as the games, the mechanisms, themes, and all that, and having that in your back pocket so that when you see Dan and you say, "Hey, you know that game you got this garbage day? Okay, my game's kind of like this in this way." And so you can kind of make an instant connection, and it shows that you're prepared. It shows that you're a professional, that you're not just some guy with an idea, but that you actually want to be a pro uh, in this business. Yes, that goes a long ways. And, you know, even on my side, I'm still learning. And so at Origins this year, I, I went with that approach. Uh, if they have a heavy euro on the table, I say, you know, I'm with Mayday Games. And I have to make the assumption that not everybody's heard of Mayday Games. And so uh, I, I just let them know we're with Mayday Games. We do light, family-friendly games do you, do you have something like that and about 70 percent of the time they had another game to show me okay? hmm. because they have to analyze which game are they going to show which game are they going to do five minutes of and right. it was the effective speed dating i had i saw more games closer to my wheelhouse than any other time just because i let them know what i'm looking for well yeah and that's that's a great point uh right there any other advice on submitting a game so we talked about speed dating but as far as submitting a game uh, either through email or in person, any just kind of general tips that can help people in that process? For me, it's it's small bites. And what that means is that if their first pitch sounds decent enough, I'll take a look at a rule book. Most, many people just want to give me their, their prototype. I, I don't want your prototype. I want to screen several times before I actually take a prototype and willing to play it and learn the rules to play it. So the, the first screening is just reach out to a publisher, let them know if they're open to submissions, uh, or, yeah, ask them if they're open for submissions. Give them a brief idea of your game. And if it's something that catches their interest, then they'll follow up with a little bit more information. Then after that rule book, I, I prefer a video presentation. That is by far the best thing you can do is, is make a video presentation of your game. You pitching the game, telling us what it is, showing the components, go over some of the rules. Because that means I don't have to read the rule book. I, I, I read so many rule books, you, you can't even imagine <laughs> And um, with a video, we get a feel for you, your personality. We get a feel for the game. We get a feel for the components and your expectations. And also, I mean, it saves us an insane amount of time. Now, designers, don't hire a film crew. Don't make this professional. Set up your phone. Shoot something simple, easy. It can be completely lowbrow. It doesn't matter. All it is is just for us to save our time to get a better idea of your game, just at a quicker time. That That's all yeah. it is. Absolutely. That is not the time to spend a bunch of money for sure. No, definitely not. Don't spend, don't spend money on art and don't spend money on a video presentation. But that makes yep. a big difference. If I can watch a, a, a five, ten minute clip of YouTube and get a feel for your game, that's much better than reading through a rule book and trying to figure it all out. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Also, another thing um, that you kind of brought up as far as that initial contact is it's the pitch. But, man, there's so much value in doing some research on how to write a good headline, on what words to use, what words are powerful words that kind of draw people in, that hook them. You know, we, we live in a time of clickbait, you know, whether it's on, the, on Facebook or wherever, where, you know, you see that headline that makes you click. What's well, the same kind of thing when you're pitching a game? What What's the clickbait headline that you can give to a publisher that's going to hook them, that's going to bring them in to want to know more about your game? Well, uh, I don't know that. The reason is is because the blind submissions go through customer service, and then they just forward them to me. So I don't – you know, he just forwards everything. Uh, definitely in, in, in the body of the email, I, I recently got one that said, uh, we have a game called Toss Salad. It's a game that you do not want to play with your mom. I know. <laughs> We we are a family friendly game company. We yeah. are moms. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had not done much research as far as that goes. Exactly. Why are you sending that to me? Uh, you know, you <laughs> got to send that to uh, Matt Fantastic. I know that he makes some some adult games. You need to send that to uh, <laughs> the people that make Cards Against Humanity. But that is not a Mayday Games game. Uh, we are a family friendly company. <laughs> Absolutely. So do you have any kind of just, you know, you've mentioned a few already, but any funny stories or any stories that stick out from somebody uh, that, that sends you a game or an idea or a prototype that just you just step, step back and say, wow. I know Stephen Bonacore, he said one time a guy gave him a prototype that was in crayon. Everything was in crayon. He's like, yeah, I don't I don't think I'm going to print this. So if you had anything like that. Yeah, I, I got one that was quite interesting. It was sent to me from a, a psychologist. And it was to help people cope with the reality of the end of the world. And, uh, you know, there's definitely so, so, some, uh, some, some red flags already. Uh, first of all, it's from an educator. They're looking at it from an education process. So right. the game is that you – it was terrible. It was a roll and move, move up a track, miss turns, move back three. And when you get to the end of the track, you're, you won't believe this. You, you literally wait for everybody to get to that point which means you're going to be disengaged. You're going to start watching TV. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. And then when you get there, you try to figure out where the space shuttle was to take the people off of the dying planet. It was, it was so bad. Uh, you know, when you hear things like, uh, like educational purposes, it, it definitely raises alarm. Uh, most games, interestingly enough, are educational. You learn math skills, you learn read, you learn, you learn how to interact. Uh, but to make it specifically for that purpose, it's 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 kind of difficult. It, it would be very difficult to pull that off. Absolutely. You wouldn't believe how I. Well, yeah. This one time it was kind of funny. This guy tells me how this game is great. It's going to change the industry. It's going to be the most amazing thing ever. You know, you watch, and then I came back and said, and, and at this point I was really nervous. It's like, do I really want to? follow up on it so i googled the guy's name and the, the name of the game he created a twitter account and spammed tabletop about 40 times in one day regarding his game of it would mean so much to me if my game was on tabletop and of course they didn't respond it was just a, it, it was bad so it's one of those things where it's like all right i'll, I'll guess i'll I guess I'll see what he has. But I wanted to kind of set him up a little bit and say, well, yeah, set, send me more information about your game, but please note that we're really busy and we won't get to it for a while. And he came back with, oh, it's already developed, ready to go, and we had two college grads write the rule book, and you won't have any problems with this game. It's just ready to be published. <laughs> and it was talisman, a really bad talisman. Roll and move, draw the card, miss, uh, miss your turn. All, I mean, it was bad. And yeah. 
I, I don't understand why he thought that that would change the industry, how it would be so great. Uh, another thing, too, is that, you know, company, publishers, we, we don't do NDAs in this industry. Uh, there's so many different ideas that if we did an NDA, if we published a game that was even remotely close to what you think your game is, we're going to have problems. And so why, why even mess with it? Again, there's such a glut of how many games are out there that why even bother? If, if you don't trust a publisher, that's fine. Don't trust them. Do whatever you need to do. Uh, there is the, the poor man's way of doing a copyright where you put the game into a, a sealed envelope. You register mail it to yourself. It has a date. If it ever goes to a court of law, you can open it inside the court with the sealed contents. But there, there's so many things that uh, – you know, there's so many opportunities where people want NDAs, and as soon as that comes up, I just explain to them, no, we're not going to do it because if there's any issues, it's just not worth our time. Yeah, and that's a good point. And honestly, people are so busy with the games they're already working on, they probably don't have time to steal your idea or to steal your game. It's just It just doesn't really happen. Correct. Yeah, nobody nobody's going to steal your game. Nobody cares. But the problem is, is there's so much overlap in ideas that at what point does someone feel that their idea got stolen? I mean, that, that brings up an interesting point. For example, I'm at church, and I have an older guy, you know, lean into me one day and say, hey, you know, Daniel, you know what would be really neat is if there was a game about fishing. He's right. That would be great. I would love to fish. I would love to do all that right on my tabletop. So if a great game comes out about fishing, is this guy going to think that that was his idea? <laughs> right. If, and that you owe him some money for it, right? Right. You know? yeah. And so here's the question. What's the difference between an idea and a developed idea. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that gets into the mechanics and how the game is actually created. Because you could have 100 games about fishing and all and be totally uh, different, but still have that same theme. Yes, exactly. And, and so it's quite fascinating to see, uh, you know, people get upset where they say, I have this idea a long time ago, but how much of that idea did they have developed? Because mm -hmm. it is one thing, but a developed idea, that's where the gold is. That's where the product is. And that's something that's worth publishing. Right. I mean, everybody's got ideas. Everybody, if you're if you're into game design at all, you probably got a hundred different ideas. Yeah. They could turn into something great, but they just live in your brain or live in your notebook. And as long as they're there, they're useless. They're useless. Exactly. So if somebody has a game where it's common to so many other games, and they think that it's original and unique, then you know, will I have problems with that person later because of an NDA? Probably. So it's just something in this industry you don't even touch. And right. Yeah, it, it's just, yeah, it's, it's not worth your time. It's not worth our time. And so if, if you're truly upset or paranoid about it, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Just do anything it does to give yourself peace, you know, wh whatever it takes. Yeah, or go to Kickstarter. You know, do it yourself. If you're really worried about people stealing your idea, throw your game on Kickstarter, see what the market thinks about it, and then go from there. Uh, because I don't, I don't really know what else to to tell somebody in that kind of scenario where they're worried about sending their game off or, you know, sending their rule set off and it's going to, oh, they're going to steal it. It's, especially if somebody thinks it's the best game ever and it's going to change the industry, which is a huge red flag in and of itself. If anybody, if you think that, you, you need to step back and just check your ego because, no, it's not going to. I mean, the, the odds of that happening are just very, very, very small. And so, but if, you know, if, you, if you're really worried about people stealing your stuff, then just print it yourself and... Don't worry about the rest. Yep, definitely, without a doubt. It, it's 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 fascinating to see different people's perspectives and ideas. Uh, I even had one designer tell me that uh, he says I don't look at other people's games. I just I just make my own. And so I was I found that quite fascinating. Um, 
I, I think that you two or Bono of you two said it best where he said every poet's a thief. Yes, steal from each other, be inspired from, well, not steal, but be inspired by other people's designs. You, you know, look at those ideas and see what you can do with them. See what you can do with that design that might be different or innovative. And that's, that's where we're at now in the industry is that the best ideas are the simple ideas. For example, we've all played games where you try to, you know, guess what's going to come out of the future. And, you know, you bet on, on future result, and then you have ways to kind of sway it that way. But what did Camel Up do that was so different than those games? It was the stackable camels. It was the unpredictable behavior and where the black one goes underneath the stack. I mean, that is so brilliant, that simplicity, that simple idea. And so a lot of times the innovative ideas are the simple ideas. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Well, Dan, do you have any other comments or advice or tips as far as, you know, approaching publishers, getting that feedback, dealing with it when they say no, anything along those lines? Yeah, just keep keep at it. I mean, if, if at some point you're going to realize either you're a game designer or you're not if you're a game designer you're just going to persist you're just going to do it and there's nothing wrong with having games that aren't published it's okay to have a game that only you and your family enjoy there's nothing wrong with that and the biggest thing is 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 get to know publishers network get to know these people uh have working relationships with them where you can talk with them you can you can communicate with them Get to know the other designers in the industry. I mean, you mentioned several amazing people in this industry that are so friendly and willing to look at your game and help. Uh, Gil Hova, J.R. Honeycutt. I mean, there are so many people in this industry that, that are willing to sit down with your game and help teach you game design skills. There's always an unpub event at, at conventions. Look for the Blue Noodle. Get to know the community. Learn about game design and development from these people that are there. And at that point... Yeah, talk to as many publishers as, as you can. Just get to know people. Get a feel for things. Because, you know, the success in life is that you showed up and you tried. And you're going to learn how to get published through the process as you continue to persist. Absolutely. And as you persist, you get better, you grow, you learn. You know, every, things change. No, nobody is the same today as they were 10 years ago. Hopefully, if you are, you're doing something wrong. You know, you, you, you evolve, you change. And the same with game designers, same with game mechanisms, everything as part of the process. But one thing that, that I love about your story, you started off as a volunteer. Yes. You were just helping out because you loved it and you wanted to be around it. And there's a lot of people in the industry. It's the same story. They started off helping at Gen Con with a booth or they started off helping as a play tester or, or helping, you know, create prototypes for somebody. And that turned into a professional gig or that turned into game designs being printed and published because they built the relationships. And so if you really care about this and it's more than just, uh, you've got one little idea then you're going to do what it takes to be a part of this industry in some way, even if you have to do it for free. Yes, that is correct. And, uh, yeah, that, that's the, the correct attitude. At one point I realized I'm going to be involved with the board game community. And how that played out, it, I couldn't have predicted it. I'm very grateful and blessed that I do have a job in the board game industry. Absolutely. Well, Dan, really appreciate your time. We're going to head over into the bonus round. We're going to uh, get Dan's opinions on, on what are some of the underutilized themes in games. Mayday, uh, they print a lot of really interesting games with interesting themes, but I want to hear his perspective on what games he really wishes we could have uh, more of. Probably more zombie games, if I had to guess. We need more zombie games. No, definitely not. But anyway, if you want to check that out, go to the BoardGameDesignLab.com, and you can get all the bonus material, lots of resources and things over there. So, Dan, really appreciate you being on the show, and uh, have a great one. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 
Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?